HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. If you Google first apple trees in North America, as apple nerds like myself have the tendency to do, you'll find an excerpt from Wikipedia that begins with, Apples were introduced to North America by colonists in the 17th century. However, the next sentence reveals the only apple native to North America are crab apples. America was home to apples long before Europeans or cider reached its shores. But there's much more to this story. Welcome back to Hardcore on HRN. I'm Dylan Hoyer. I've been wondering why the mainstream history of apples and cider skips so quickly from the domesticated fruit's origins in Kazakhstan to its passage to Europe and eventually onwards to the east coast of the U.S., where cider makers are reviving the beverage today. On Hardcore, we've tried to subvert this story since our debut, but there's more work to be done. Why are native crab apples relegated to the second sentence of America's apple history, as if the first trees on this land are merely an afterthought? Not only did indigenous people of North America have a rich relationship with apple trees, they still do. And crab apples have even helped propagate new varieties on North American soil. We'll travel along with apple seeds and stalks across the continent to understand how cider culture has evolved throughout time and across regions. And that story begins with Malice Fusca. In Haida, the name for crab apple is Kai, Kai, which also 
pertains to the sour quality or the tartness of the fruit. And if you were going to say the tree, you would say kai hil or kai kai, which adds the suffix of a plant or tree to it. In the Simsian languages, Smaliach, uh, the word for crabapple is molks, and related in the related Niska language, milks and gixan, milks. In Kwakwala, it's tsalk, tsalk, again, pertaining to the sort of the sour quality of the fruit. And so every language has a, a different name for these wonderful fruits. Kwa'op in some of the Salishan languages. Meet Nancy Turner. I'm an ethnobotanist. So I'm a botanist who is particularly interested in the way people and plants interact with each other. And that's been my lifetime study, especially working here in British Columbia with Indigenous peoples and knowledge holders who have relied on plants for generations. Apples weren't fermented by any of the First Nations Nancy has researched, but they were preserved in other ways. The apples themselves are tiny, maybe the size of the end of your first finger, and they're on long stems and clustered together. And you can eat them just fresh off the tree when they're ripe, but the usual uh, way of using them was to harvest them in large quantities and parboil them and put them into cedar wood boxes and other containers, cover them with water, and put a layer of oil on the top. And that kind of seals the top. And over the winter time, they don't ferment, but they get sweeter and softer over the winter. And many of the elders that I talked with remember as children um, these, these delicious apples that they were given as treats over the winter. Um, one of the Heshquid elders I worked with, Alice Paul, remembers when she was little, she would sneak down into the cellar of their house and grab a handful of crab apples and take them back and eat them in bed. And when her mother finally, after some weeks, went to get crab apples, there were none left and she had to admit what she'd done. <laughs> um, so the elders all have very fond memories of, the, of this fruit. One of my father and grandmother's favorite ways to have them uh, was to have it mixed with oolican grease um, and chilled. Um, and it really, as they say, hit the spot. This is Cameron Hill. I'm a uh, Gitkat member. I've uh, resided in the, the Gitkat territory, specifically Hartley Bay, um, all of my life. They also had a really big meaning in, in the way of feasting within our territory because they were often served as a dessert at the end of a feast or a potlatch at the end of a dinner that uh, would either be of meat within our traditional territory, whether it be deer or moose or, or fish. In addition to eating the fruit, Indigenous people put the trunk, bark, and branches to use. Well, crabapple wood is also very strong and flexible, and so it could be used too for making bows or digging sticks. The branches are springy, and I remember one elder telling me they would hang a baby 
basket or cradle from a crabapple branch. And it was like having a jolly jumper. You just pull on it a little bit and the cradle will jiggle up and down and make the baby keep sleeping while the mother's busy digging roots or picking crabapples. The bark and the branches that are used in some cases to make medicine. And uh, there are various medicines made from crabapple bark, sometimes on its own or sometimes mixed with the barks of other trees and used to treat tuberculosis or uh, stomach ailments or sometimes coughs, eye medicine. I should mention, as well as it being food for humans, many Animals love crab apples, and my friend, the late clan chief Adam Dick, Kwaksistalawakla, sang a song, a beautiful song that he was taught when the women from Kingcum Inlet were paddling over to the crab apple patch at the mouth of Kingcum, and they would sing this song to the bears, and and it went like this. We're coming to pick crab apples, so please move away. Don't come near, but don't worry, we'll leave some for you. Using the fruit is as essential as sharing the wealth. One of my grandmother's biggest teachings to me was a very simple phrase that people always hear me say, and, and I always try and promote this, um, and it's, it, it goes like this. It's, it's take what you need, but use what you take. And, and I think the idea behind that is just to never waste anything. The, the crab apples and, and the fish, the clams, the shellfish, the cockles, the crabs, all of the things that we harvest as the Gitgat people and the Gitgat nation, we need to make sure that that harvesting is going to be there for all of our future generations to be able to do. Cam's grandmother was an expert when it came to apples. When my grandmother, Marjorie Hill, was, uh, she was getting on in age and uh, really couldn't get out to, um, to do the harvesting that we were all able to do at a younger age. And she told us one fall day to, um, she'd really enjoy it if we, if we went and picked her some crab apples from what we call Old Hartley Bay. So uh, we picked all of the crab apples along this meandering river called the Coel. And at the end of the day, we, we came back home and I was so happy to be able to present my grandmother with a garbage bag that was about a third full of these crab apples. And she kind of gave this puzzled look to me and she says, you mixed them all up. And I, th- I said, what? I said, uh, they're just crab apples. No, is what I called her, which means mother in our language. They're all molks, I said. And she said, they're not. She said, they're molks, but they're from different places within the river. And as she said that, she proceeded to start going through the bag and separating them. And I was just in awe, I'll never forget the, that moment when she started doing that. And by the end of the time of her looking through the entire bag, she had made five different piles on her dining room table of crab apples that were from not only different trees within the little territory that we harvested from, but from within the, the territory itself uh, along the Koal River. 
And I was just amazed at that moment. I, I knew she was such a incredible knowledge keeper and, and storyteller, but that just drove the point home to me that, you know what, Cam, you got so much to learn. So how do we protect and share such specialized knowledge? I uh, have been blessed with an incredible wife and three incredible children, and I have a nine-month-old granddaughter that uh, has been on many excursions with us already, uh, learning how to harvest from our territory. And it's uh, it's quite an incredible feeling to be out in the in our territory and to know that my grandparents and my ancestors walk on the rivers and the shores that we are still harvesting from. That's raw power to me. That's I can feel them there. I can I can I can feel their guidance. I I know that they're helping me. And I also bring it into our school to make sure that the youth within our community not only get out to go and harvest many of the things that we have, but to also have that thinking that yes, it's there and we can harvest it, but always remember to take what you need and use what you take. I asked Nancy the same question. And I see these people that I've worked with as being like that, keeping the knowledge going just for whatever reason, because they learned about it from their own elders and because they were interested in it and because they saw the value of it, that they shared it with me. And together we were able to um, ensure that it kept going through that time of really bad change. And now uh, it's being taken up again and carried on in many different ways uh, by the younger generations. This work is necessary because of how much has been lost, not as a result of time, but because of force. When the first Europeans arrived to this area, of course, they uh, relied in large part on the food of this region and on the first peoples to provide it for them. But they soon started bringing over their own food and they brought apples, varieties of apples from Europe and, um, and even other parts of the world. And when they did this often, the native species, whether it's the Pacific crabapple or the wild strawberries or the berries of different kinds, tended to be replaced. And in some cases, the, the native crabapples were chopped down and replaced. Genocide, theft, the erasure of language and culture, the effects of colonialism were catastrophic for Indigenous people as well as for native plants and animals. Yet settlers could not have survived without their help. And likewise, at points in history, the crab apple has helped non-native apple varieties survive. It's interesting to note that in the Fraser Delta area, um, in the last 150 years or so, the orchardists actually learned to use the base of the Pacific native Pacific crabapple uh, as uh, stock for grafting the apples, the new apples that they brought with them. And one of the advantages of the Pacific crabapple is that it grows in damp places. It doesn't mind having its roots in water for part of the year, or at least in very damp soil. 
soil that would be too damp to have uh, the regular European apples. And so using the uh, the base of the Pacific crabapple as a stock for grafting the commercial apples that were brought in made a lot of sense and it made it possible for uh, orchardists to have their orchards in places that would otherwise be too wet to grow them. Thanks to the knowledge of Indigenous people, and in some cases to the crabapple itself, other apple trees have proliferated across North America, from colonial times to today. And it turns out Nancy may just have a connection to cider's early roots in the U.S. So my maiden name is Chapman, and my father was named John Chapman, My brother is named John Chapman as well. And, of course, John Chapman is the name of Johnny Appleseed. My grandfather, my father's father, was James W. Chapman. And he lived, he was born in Peebles, Ohio. And Ohio is one of the states that Johnny Appleseed traveled through a lot and spent a lot of time in. And you probably know the the song about Johnny Appleseed and how how he used to go along and and throw out apple cores everywhere and plant apples. And it was largely to support the cider industry. And so we have in our family this, this story that my grandfather was a distant relative of Johnny Appleseed from the Ohio area. And I've always been very proud of that because I love apples and I love plants. And I just kind of feel this connection with Johnny Appleseed that goes way back. John Chapman knew colonists moving across the frontier would want cider, and his apple trees laid the groundwork for where they would settle. We'll take a look at cider's explosive popularity in America after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. Get started at visitithaca.com. I'm Chava Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. 
Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability managed forests. 81A is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back to Hardcore. To understand how robust America's cider culture evolved to be, we took a trip to a vault. Our collection here, we specialize in the life sciences, life sciences and applied social science, the human ecology. So that's what you'll find here, these old and rare books from, uh, you know, I think the oldest book we have here is, is from the early 1600s. It's a beekeeping book. Okay, this vault isn't exactly top secret, but multiple key card swipes were required. It's a special section of Cornell University's Mann Library. Okay, so here we are, our vault. We keep them here in a vault because A, they need to be secured so, people, so they don't you know, disappear. B, they also need very specific conditions to, to, to survive. Many of the older books were not printed on acidic paper. They were printed on, on paper that won't deteriorate, but still, you need to make sure that you don't get moldy and you don't burn. Our tour guide was librarian Evelyn Ferretti. Some of these titles are long. Yeah, yeah, and back in the day, I know, can you imagine? So the, you know, the American Orchardist, or A Practical Treatise on the Culture and Management of Apple and Other Fruit Trees, with observations on the diseases to which they are liable and their remedies, colon, to which is added the most approved method of manufacturing and preserving cider, and also wine from apple juice and currants, colon, adapted to the use of American farmers and all lovers and cultivators of fine fruit. That is all one sentence. Bravo, though. You actually got the title very well. <laughs> the books there are truly a portal to another time. The Apples of New York. It's a beautiful two-volume set. It's actually a part of a larger series of the Fruits of New York. It was completed at the New York Agricultural Experiment Station in Geneva in the early 1900s. And so that is at the time, this was published in the very early 1900s. Every, every farm who had cider, made cider. Then things changed, prohibition, beer making came on, and all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, this, the industry, as it were, was lost. Um, so this was just right before that. So here you have a two-volume set that shows you all the apples that they found in New York State, and there are hundreds of them, like 600. You know, here you have a bunch of, a bunch of Devonshire Quarrenden, Worcester, Worcester Pyrmon, Early Spice. Court of Wick. Joanting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Carrie Pippin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're just so lyrical, actually. You know, they, they, they read, it almost reads like a novel. Mm -hmm. um, some more, let's see, some more. And again, um, you know, fairly long descriptions here. This is not just a list of apples. It goes into depth about like where it's from, you know, where they think it came from. And then also again, some of the qualities. For example, here are the Tompkins King. Fruit has a beautiful red color, enough with enough clearly contrasting yellow to make it very attractive. So it talks, you know, describes it, but then it also talks about 
um, were the tree hardier, healthier, longer lived, and more productive, it would be much more extensively grown. So it's telling you that it has, you know, it's telling you a little bit about, a little bit about like what the cultivation conditions are, that it might be susceptible to collar rot or collar blot, um, blight, sorry, that a little bit more about its history, historical, and then, you know, tree, vigorous, form, spreading, open, lateral branches, fruit, very large, how, to, how long it keeps. That's a really important piece of information. How does it store? Does it store well? Does it deteriorate quickly? The illustrations are beautiful, especially in these much older ones. The illustrations are just god-awful beautiful. Just beautiful. The documentation, descriptions, and art in these books demonstrate just how central apples and cider were to the culture of the time. Encyclopedia of Practical Horticulture. Mm. Where's the date here? 1914. Mm -hmm. So it has this whole section on apples right in here. Volume 3 tells us that in New York, in 1914, 54,000 farmers were producing cider in 1914. 54,000 farmers, 25% of all farmers were producing cider. Now, was it doing commercially? I'm not quite, it's not quite clear to me. Right. But they were at least to report. Of course, that again changed, and I'm saying that that changed by 1920, whoop, that it dropped. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of interesting to know that because when you think, oh, the Finger Lakes is the Mecca for, you realize that's why, you know, it was, it, it's, it does have a really old, old root here. And so when you go and, and you go hiking through and you see all those wild apple seedlings, you understand mm -hmm. it was just such a tradition in this, in, this, uh, in this area. So I feel like that's part of the terroir. And then here we have a cider, cider another small book, Cider manual, Maker's Manual. So these are things that are, I think, could be potentially very helpful to somebody who's just even starting out. Is this for someone who's at the time making cider professionally or is just for your everyday person with an apple tree? Well, it's for your everyday, because it was everyday person with an apple tree. I mean, cider was just the, the beverage at the, at the time. Just as a love of apples was not unique to European settlers, it wasn't unique to the East Coast. Where else was cider culture blossoming? Basically, after the Revolutionary War and in early early parts of the United States, um, Ohio was first settled, and basically it's settled by New Englanders. So New Englanders basically move out there and, and bring with them a lot of their cuttings and their fruit and bring it out west with them uh, and start propagating orchards and start propagating nurseries out there pretty quickly. And... They have some success, but the, the real game changer there is the evolution of, of land-grant universities. Let me introduce you to Dan Pucci. I am the author of American Cider, a modern guide to a historic beverage. We kind of divided the country into eight, into eight regions, and then we took a snapshot of each region. So in the southeast, we talk a lot about the um, large plantations that was worked by enslaved people who um, developed a really unique apple culture there. And then that in contrast to the apple culture that existed among free, mostly white people who lived in the mountains and more marginal areas. And also the indigenous people there as well, who also developed their own unique apple culture. And how those three cultures can all be seen reflected today and the apples that are grown there today and where they're grown and how they're grown are all reflected to those, those early cultures that existed there hundreds of years ago. There is so much regional diversity to explore. But let's return to those early orchards at land-grant universities in the Midwest for a moment. 
because their legacy is long. So in Midwest, we talk a lot about the universities. And at that, that time, we were those places like Michigan State, uh, University of Minnesota, uh, all get set up and get organized and start doing research and start doing the extension work uh, in terms of like figuring out how to, how to grow fruit there. There's a, there's a quote from Horace Greenlee, who is the publisher of The Atlantic, who says something like, I, I would never go to Minnesota or never live in Minnesota because they don't, they don't have apples there. But within a decade or so, uh, Minnesota was had a number of native apple varieties and, and is home to probably the most successful apple variety in the last 50 years, which is Honeycrisp, all of that university program. So when Europeans get to the Midwest, it's about them kind of relearning how to farm and figuring out ways to ways to farm better and more efficiently and to make sense of their new surroundings um, and to and to how orchards fit into that. And the extension work is still really important there. So at University of Minnesota right now, they're going through and like testing their collection. They have thousands of varieties. They grow tons of apple varieties every year from seed. And then they, the crazy process in which they like uh, will grow apples and then test them and see how they grow and, and taste them. It takes like, Takes a de- decades for fruit from, a se- from an apple to go from seed to like propagation um, commercially. It's like a really long process. To places like Michigan State, which is doing a huge project right now on red fleshed apples, they're breeding the whole next generation of of red fleshed apples at Michigan State, um, and they are propagating. They're propagating new varieties and they're promoting varieties like Otterson and Cranberry, which are these two really great red flesh varieties that are um, really interesting and, and fairly and fairly friendly to grow and to make cider out of. So th- that history is still um, that's set up basically in the, in the 19th century is still very much in play today in terms of like the next generation of, of cider taking place in those states. How is all this apple growing reflected in the drinking culture? Midwest is a big cider drinking town. Chicago loves cider. Michigan is is a big state for cider. They make a lot more um, canned cider in the Midwest, I would say. And there's a lot less wine type cider um, in Michigan, which is the which is the like, driving route of at least by volume of cider being made in the Midwest and like states like Ohio, which were one of the first apple growing regions. Um, it's kind of been lagging behind a couple of new projects are happening there, but they're not having really materialized yet. But, um, anyway, there's a lot of really interesting cider being made there and it mostly stays really close to home. And one of my favorite is, is keepsake cidery. They're in, uh, Dundas, Minnesota, and they are in Southern Minnesota and they are make, amazing great natural cider nothing added and it's fantastic it has so much personality and character to it as a new yorker dan enjoyed exploring cideries beyond the east coast when it comes to drinking the more you know the more fun it is i was really uh excited about the regional diversity and the like this literally the sheer amount of small projects that are happening, projects large and small that are happening around the country, uh, in terms of like really amazing programs like Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project in Southwest Colorado, which is, um, you know, revitalizing a really hundred year old orchard economy down there. Uh, there's like four or five 
cider makers in these in that county. And uh, the county is like six hours from any major <laughs> metropolitan area, and they make really great, really unique ciders there that are really special and don't taste like ciders anywhere else. And then the history in those places and the long orchard history that existed there. Um, like all those orchards were planted basically during the, the mining boom at the end of the 19th century there. Um, so to feed, to feed the mines. Um, and, uh, they're just still there. Again, it's important to note that even after Europeans sowed their orchards and made America their home, indigenous people continued to play a significant role in the development of new apple varieties. So in the, in the Southeast, we have these just really interesting varieties called limber twigs, which are these um, tip-bearing apples that are named such because they bend and they are very limber twigs. That's the name of the variety. Um, and they were probably developed by um, Cherokee and Cree people before the relocation. And they basically, in the 1840s, um, this guy Jarvis Van Buren... He's actually like Martin Van Buren's cousin. He's upstate. He's from upstate New York, and he moves down there. He tries his his whole goal is basically like he wants to like create a new economy in the South that's not as based in in slave labor. And he's like, we need to like diversify like the economy here. We can't just have cotton. We need to do other things. So he tries to do orchards, and he he gets his apple varieties from these old uh, Cherokee and Cree villages. He goes through and finds all these varieties and cultivates them and, and basically restores them and, and grows them. And there's a number of these really unique varieties that, that he discovered, he rediscovered, and began to cultivate. With the expansion of European settlements into new regions, the loss of existing culture and tradition continued. And especially the Finger Lakes, um, and their orchards were all destroyed by the Clinton expedition, Clinton Sullivan expedition in the, at the end of the Revolutionary War when they basically destroyed all the villages and all the trees, um, basically wiped out all the homes and villages of all the uh, Iroquois in Finger Lakes and kind of devastated what was a, a pretty rich orchard culture that never really that never came back. So given how sprawling cider culture is through time and space, why are we so attached to one particular narrative, to one with holes and inaccuracies and simplifications. The same question could be asked about the stories we tell about our country. Just as we need to open our minds to what it means to be American, there is also room to break the mold when it comes to what qualifies as good cider. Dan thinks one barrier to overcome is bias about the flavor of the beverage itself. European, English, bittersweet varieties, bittersweet varieties, tannins and things like that. And those make delicious ciders and are really great. But also we're learning there's a, a greater diversity of taste out there. And that um, a lot of our uniquely American varieties, either both our, our heirloom varieties in like Newtown Pippin, or Ben Davis or something like that can make really uh, excellent cider if treated, if treated properly. And that like tannins aren't the end all be all. And that having a, a more diverse array of, of flavors and things like that are going to be really important for years to come. Um, I gave a talk this, this, this winter about crab apples at CiderCon and crab apples are really tart and are really unique within uh, Americans. 
a lot of Americans know what crab apples are, even though they don't know what they actually are. Um, and they, those ciders have big taste. They have big flavor. They're very tart. They have very fine personalities to them. And they're kind of a uniquely Ameri- American sense of cider. Uh, so we're finding our, I think we're going to find our, our own voice in the years to come, which is really exciting. Next time on Hardcore, we peer into the future, looking at climate change and how what we imbibe may shift. Yeah, there were multiple times when colleagues, you know, just in terms of like the human interaction of of climate change, couldn't go to their research sites because of fire. You know, they were being evacuated. Um, smoke is a health hazard. If we don't get a handle on this, um, I really feel that we're in for a, a world of hurt um, because uh, a lot of our traditional ways are going to be lost for the simple fact that we just can't go out and harvest what we used to harvest because they're just not there. This has been a big thing in California um, where we've had a, a lot of pretty horrible harvests the last few years and a lot of natural winemakers uh, or natural-ish winemakers uh, embracing alternative fermentation products like cider as, as part of their portfolio. Hardcore is produced by Hannah Forden and me, Dylan Hoyer. This episode was engineered by Michael Edwin with additional engineering by Matt Patterson. Hardcore is powered by Simplecast. Hardcore is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org or follow us at heritage underscore radio. Thanks for listening.